every superhero needs this cape. Um, thank you guys for leading us in worship. Just a great job. Thank you so much for serving us in that way. Um, so today we are in uh, part eight of a series we started back in the early part of the summer. It's called From the Heart. And this is a series where I ask everybody who's speaking to share something they wish they had heard when they were in high school. And if you've noticed a pattern, um, everyone else has spoken like once, and I'm taking like five of these, because there's a lot of things that I wish I'd heard when I was in high school. So um, today's another example of that. This is a good follow-up to Kim and Megan's messages the last two weeks. Uh, today I'm talking about half-hearted discipleship. And we're going to be using, like, this is like an introduction to the book of Judges. And uh, so if you want to get depressed, read the book of Judges. Um, it is about Israel turning their back on God just over and over and over again. In fact, one time I was on a mission trip when I was in college and uh, just making some small talk with some of the guys I worked with. And I said, hey, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And, of course, you heard the typical, like, oh, Philippians or, oh, Matthew or something like that. And this one kid named John, he said, uh, my favorite book of the Bible is Judges. Now, if you knew this kid, it made sense because he had a really dark personality and was prone to violence. And uh, so it kind of fit, but it's kind of a depressing book. Um, in fact, the pattern that we see in the book of Judges reminds me of this old show. The old people will know this show, maybe. They used to come on uh, VH1. Is that even a channel? Is that still a thing, VH1? I don't know. It's, it's in the other music channels. But um, there was like this show called VH1 Behind the Music back in the day. And this was like, it was always the same pattern for every artist or band that they featured. It, the pattern was this. It was like rags to riches. Riches led to drugs. Then there was like drugs, drugs, and more drugs. Then it was like rock bottom and rehab. Then there's the comeback. And that was the pattern that you saw with almost every show that they did. And it was like same story, different band. Judges is similar because Israel disobeys. God sends a judge. They repent. Then it's repeat. It's the same story, different judge all throughout the book. And so here's some background to the book of Judges. If you remember, Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. 400 years, they're set free miraculously by God through the 10 plagues and destruction of the Egyptian army. And then Moses disobeys, so now Moses can't go into the promised land. And so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years there around Sinai. And then eventually Josh, Moses dies, and then Joshua is raised up as the next leader of Israel. And then Joshua leads them into Canaan, and this is the promised land. And so Judges is a transition book between Joshua's death and the rise of the first king, which was Saul. And so the purpose of the book of Judges... This book is written to show the consequences of unbelief and disobedience. So God commanded the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites in that land, but they disobey. And so I don't have a ton of time. I could spend an entire sermon on this topic, but I'll spend like literally two minutes on this. But many people struggle with the idea that God would command Israel to take out and drive out other nations. And it's a hard concept for us to understand, especially in the context of today's world. So why would God ask or command Israel to drive out the inhabitants of this land, the Canaanites? Well, the question you have to really wrestle with is, does God have a right to judge evil? That's the first question. Because if you read about the Canaanites, they were committing all kinds of horrible evil in that part of the world. They were doing 
child sacrifices. They had, if you look at their religious system, the whole thing was just evil through and through. And so if you ask the bigger question, does God have a right to judge evil? That's the first question that you have to answer. So God knew that if Israel didn't take out these nations, that they would that Israel would then fall prey to idolatry themselves, and they actually did later on. They fell prey to the same idolatry that the Canaanites were guilty of. Something else to consider is whenever you read, if, if someone says to you, but I can't believe in a God who would have his people carry out these acts on other nations, but if you read the Bible, it's very often that God uses other nations to carry those acts out on the people of God. So God is equal opportunity. Like, he does it both ways because the people of Israel were often turning their back on God and committing the same evils. And so God, the question you have to wrestle with is, does God have a right to judge evil in general? And if you understand that part, I'm not saying it becomes easier to understand why he would do this, but you understand the backstory. It's not just random. This is something that God has some purpose behind. And then secondly, if you read the details of the Old Testament, it's not that God would just say, kill every single person. He had, he had terms of peace. He had, he had ways in which they could make peace with people and offer them peaceful uh, consequences versus the, um, the more destructive ones. And uh, there were many Canaanites that were permitted to live when other nations would completely kill everybody. Um, and that's how they would do it. That's not always what happened here with the Canaanites. But it was really a matter of, of, of them dispossessing the land so that God could tear down the structures of evil that the Canaanites had in place in that section of geography. You know, another question that um, people ask the question, how can a good God tell Israel to destroy the Canaanites? But people also ask the question, how can a good God allow so much evil in our world? So why doesn't he just destroy all evil? In fact, my kids, I think, when they were really young, you know, your kids will often ask you questions that you don't see coming, and so we're talking about the Bible, and one of them just says, so why doesn't God just destroy evil, like, now? And as a parent, as a pastor, you're like, let me think about that, right? And so you start to formulate your response, and I said this to one of my kids, because he'd have to destroy me, you, and a bunch of people that we're praying for right now, because he'd have to destroy all evil, because there's evil in me, Right? And evil in you. So we can't just say, well, why does he just destroy all evil? Because that includes all of us when you think about that. So sometimes our questions can contradict each other. One minute we're asking, why doesn't God just handle evil in the here and now? Then we open the scriptures and we see when he does, and then we question that as well. And so you can see how our questions can, can contradict one another. So God tells Israel to drive out these Canaanites, but they disobey. And so now they're living among these Canaanites, and suddenly the culture of Canaan begins to look appealing. You know, Israel came from slavery, so humble beginnings. But Canaan, they have money, they have prestige, they have art. This is like going from, like you guys, and this is, we live in small town, fairly small town Texas. So this is like going from small town Texas to like New York City. And, you know, when you go to a big city like that, everything just seems more respectable and legit, and you just feel like, no, this is the place. Like, this, this place just seems to scream legitimacy more so than the town that I grew up in. 
And so you begin to maybe adopt some of the practices and some of the things that you see in those cultures because you're influ influenced by those things. So Canaan has the same effect on the Israelites. And so Canaan's culture influences them. And the Canaanite religion was very sexual in nature. So they would have these um, temples to their idols, and they would commit sexual acts in these temples. So you can imagine this would not be a difficult sell to the Israelites. Like, your religion seems a lot better than ours, right? Like, this seems better than what happens in, inside of our temples. And so, in many ways, the, um, the Canaanite culture began to influence Israel, and they had this way of, of combining worship with pleasure, and this would have been a very tempting thing for the nation of Israel. So they, they, they get caught up in idolatry as well with the Canaanites. So look with me at Judges, actually don't turn this at the end of the book, but Judges 21, verse 25, where it says this. And this is a summary of the whole book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so Israel begins to embrace the gods and the ways of the Canaanites. And it sounds a lot like I think our culture today, where we are today. And there really are two ways in which I think where Christians can react to sin in our culture today. And the first is surprise and disgust. The second is acceptance and embrace. And what often happens is if the generation before you has the first response, which is just surprise and disgust, the generation after them will have the second response, which is acceptance and embrace. Because the pendulum will swing. Extremes. When one, one generation does this, the next generation does that, but we have to be grieved. Both of these responses, of course, are wrong and sinful. We should not be surprised when people sin, whether it's believers or unbelievers. Kim discussed that two weeks ago. But we also shouldn't go the other direction and have this acceptance and embrace of what God clearly calls sin. And so Israel's getting caught up in this, in their culture. And I think we do the same thing today. So this is what Israel's getting wrapped up in because they're half-hearted, just like many of us are um, here in this room. So look with me, and you can turn to Judges chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. So this is really talking about the tribes, not these guys, Simeon. Those guys are long gone. But these are the tribes that it's talking about here. And so here's the question. What did God tell Judah to do? God told Judah to go up and take on the Canaanites and says, I'm going to give the land into your hand. But instead, what does Judah do? The tribe of Judah asks the tribe of Simeon to join them. Now, why, why might they do that? Because they are afraid and they lack faith. You see, disobedience always comes from this lack of faith and lack of trusting that God is good. The same thing happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell into sin, the first sin. This all came from this lack of trust, this lack of belief, that God is good, they can trust God. And the same thing is happening here. So I'm going to give you five characteristics of a half-hearted disciple. The first is disobedience in the small things. Small disobedience has big consequences. 
I try to instill this in my own kids. We, we try to harp on those ideas that if you even tell, like, what you might think of as a small lie, like, every person that I knew growing up that lied about small things, cheated in small ways, it led to much bigger things later on. And we, so we tell our kids, if you're going to lie about something tiny, then you will lie about something big. And so it's a character issue. So one characteristic of a half-hearted disciple is disobedience in the small things. So it might not seem like a big deal for Judah to tell Simeon, the tribe of Judah to tell the tribe of Simeon, hey, come help us. But that's not what God said to do. God said, I'm going to give the Canaanites into your hand. And so he, they didn't trust God. And so they disobeyed in what might seem like a small thing. And so the question for you is, where are you making compromises? Where are you disobeying God in what you might consider small ways? It's not that big of a deal. I mean, no one's, this is not that big of a thing. I can do this. No one's going to know. No one's going to find out. So where are we embracing sin in these similar areas? So even though Judah doesn't fully obey, look what happens. God still gives them victory. So in spite of their disobedience, God still gives, gives them the victory. And the issue is now, in Canaan, every city had its own king. And after they would conquer these cities, this one king named Adonai Bezek, he escapes, and he's on the run. And so the tribe of Judah chases after this king, and when they capture him, instead of killing him, they do something kind of strange. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes. I told you Judges was weird and kind of weird and depressing. Now, the question is, why do they do this? It sounds like one of those like old Monty Python movies, right? Um, can you hold a sword without thumbs? I haven't tried, but I, guess it's, I bet it's kind of hard, right? You can't do it. So um, can you run fast without big toes? Probably not. So instead of killing this guy, they take away his ability to fight. So this is really like a mercy for him, like making sure he can't ever attack them in some way. So it sounds awful, but this is actually a mercy. He gets to live, but they um, incapacitate him from being able to fight against them. So this is kind of why they're doing it this way. And then in Judges 1, verse 7, this king says, And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him into Jerusalem, and he died there. So this guy, this guy sees this as what Buddhists might call karma, coming back to get you, <laughs> that he's done this to 70 other people plus, and now this has happened to him. So he sees this as God repaying him for what he's done to many others. And then flip down to Judges 1, verse 19, where it says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now, the, and now at first, this passage looks positive because it says that God's with them. They have the victory. But then it says they could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because of chariots of iron. Now, where else have we heard about chariots of iron? Well, Egypt had chariots of iron. And did God defeat the Egyptians? God defeated the Egyptians. So the next characteristic of a half-hearted disciple is someone who's too scared to take risks. You see, God calls Israel 
to be strong and courageous when the odds are stacked against them. And it calls you and I to do the exact same thing. You see, true discipleship means that we take risk. You know, it's hard to wrap our minds around this idea because where we live in what's called the Bible Belt, I'm not sure how much we can even call it that anymore, but what's called the Bible Belt, where it's like sort of popular, at least in some little mini cultures, to go to church and to be a Christian. It's just kind of what people do. They're kind, of, they're kind of raised up in it, I guess, for a lot of people like many of us are. But where we live today, following Jesus is seen as this safe thing and not this dangerous thing. When you and I grew up in the church, this is just how we come to view it. I mean, it just, it just seems like a nice sanitized life. Like, you just go to church, you do the church thing. And listen, I know there are people in this room that, like, you, it, right now you're sitting here, but everything in you wants to defy the whole system. You're just like, I, I only come here because my parents make me. I understand that. I was in the same boat that you were in when I was in high school in some ways. And for a lot of us, like, you look at all the trappings of the Christian faith, and you're just like, I want no part of it. Like, nothing in me resonates with this. And yet you're being made to do it by someone else. And I understand that dilemma to be in. But here's where I struggle. I think we don't really envision the Christian faith in the way that God wants us to. Because following Jesus was never meant to be this, like, safe proposition. It was never meant to be that. And yet, because so many of us are raised in that in the, in the church and here in Texas, it just becomes this, like, sanitized, neutral life that you live. And nothing about it feels like it's challenging in, in that way. But if you go overseas, where many of you know, you get baptized, and there's a good chance you get persecuted. You might even get killed for your faith. This happens all over the world. In most places and in most times, following Jesus is an extremely dangerous thing to do. And so here's where I struggle. Because whenever you have, um, whenever you're single, it, it, you, you kind of have this mindset with the faith like, yeah, I can just, I can take on the world, go out there and share my faith, go to dangerous places. But then you get a wife, you get a couple of kids, and something happens to us. Now, this happens to me, and I'm trying to like, think of how do I get out of this mindset? This suddenly, well, that's not safe. That's not safe. That's not safe. And so you start to kind of become withdrawn in yourself and not be as bold as God calls us to be in our faith. And so the question is, where are you too scared to take risks? Where are you too scared to trust God that God's strength can be enough in you to get you through whatever you're about to face. In Judges 1, 28, it says, When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. So instead of obeying God and driving out the Canaanites, the Israelites enslaved them. They made an economic decision. They said, you know what? We're not really going to dispossess the Canaanites, like God said. We're going we're to bring them into our culture, and we're going to enslave them. The same thing that was done to us in Egypt, we're going to now do to the Canaanites. And so what they did was convenience over obedience. The Israelites did what was convenient for them. And sin is always 
more convenient. It just is. There's not many situations I can think of where I can see, like, the godly thing and the sinful thing, and that the godly thing is more convenient than the sinful thing. It's almost always the sinful option just is more convenient to us. It just is. I think about whenever I do uh, counseling with couples before they get married, and one of the hardest questions I have to ask is that first session where I say, hey, listen, before I can do your wedding, I have to ask this question. It's really difficult, but are you guys involved sexually? Are you living together? And it's an awkward question, right? But we have to ask that question. And if, they're, if they are, I want to challenge them to follow Christ and do this thing the right way. But very often I get this response. It's like the awkward silence, and they're like, yeah, yeah, we are. And I'll say, very lovingly walk them through, well, this is not really God's design for you. Let's talk about um, the Christian sexual ethic and how we're supposed to live it out in our culture today and be different. And oftentimes they're just like, yeah, we're not interested in that. This happens more often than the other way where they actually turn and say, hey, you're right. Like, we didn't realize that. Let's, let's turn and repent. That often happens where they just say, we're not interested in that at all. And they'll say things like, well, I mean, we're living together. It's easier. It saves money. I mean, this is, it's just, it's just easier to stay how we are. And I always just, I say with love in my heart, I say, listen, yes, sin's more convenient. It's always more convenient to do, to continue in that. It's more convenient than obedience. I mean, if it wasn't, we wouldn't do it, right? And so you're going to see this statement all throughout chapter 1 of Judges. If you read on in chapter 1, it'll say, and Israel did not drive out the inhabitants. It's going to say it over and over and over again. And then look over in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Where it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So God commands them to drive out the Canaanites and to tear down these altars, but they disobey. But even in their sin, look at the angel reminding them of God's grace. God made a covenant with them, and if you look back at uh, chapter 1, verse 19, it said they could not because they had chariots, but this angel says you would not drive out the Canaanites. The next characteristic is saying I can't, but it's really I won't. So where in your life are you saying that? Where are you saying I can't? I can't break off that relationship. No, it's really you won't break off that relationship. I can't forgive that person. No, it's really that you won't forgive that person. I can't stop looking at pornography. No, it's that you won't stop looking at those things. And so what area, what areas does, does God want to change you, but you think change is just totally impossible? What areas of our lives is that, might that apply to when the real issue is our refusal to let him change us? And look down at verse 3 through 5 where it says, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bachim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. 
So this angel shows up, confronts the people of Israel, and says, you want to live among idols where you're going to get exactly what you want? God's going to give that to you. And so whenever you and I, we chase sin, sometimes God gives us just what we want, and there's built-in consequences to that. Then we hear about the consequences, and then what happens? Well, suddenly we, we get all spiritual. We start to weep and wail, and we start sacrificing. We start going to church and doing spiritual things to get right with God. And this is what the nation of Israel, they get, they get spiritual. They start weeping and wailing before God and getting spiritual before God. But the issue is, this is a big facade, as you'll see throughout the entire book of Judges. Their spiritual activity just becomes a facade to keep from dealing with their heart and allowing God to work in them and through them. And so the next, the last quality of a half-hearted disciple is confession without repentance. Confession is to admit something is sin, but repentance is to turn away from it in a real way. You know, many of us, we confess, we don't repent. Those aren't the same things. So the question is, are we grieved by sin or just scared of the consequences? Do we, do we really see sin as a violation of a relationship and not just a violation of a rule? If you can begin to see sin as a violation of a relationship, you'll become grieved by it. If you see it as just a violation of a rule, it's never going to grieve you. It's never going to break your heart that you're breaking God's heart or someone else's heart in that way. You know, it's easy to see these five characteristics and just feel hopeless and be like, well, how do I, yes, all of those convict me. How do I fix it? What do I do about it? And again, I turn you to the cross like I do every single week. I love what uh, Tim Keller says. He says, the cross is the place where we find the freedom to accept ourselves without being proud, but also the challenge and to challenge ourselves without being crushed. So the proposition of the cross, the gospel, that Jesus offers you salvation because of a sacrifice for you on the cross on your behalf, the proposition isn't just to, okay, believe in that and just continue sitting in your sin. The proposition is that you believe it in such a way, you trust it in such a way that you allow him to change you and to transform you. And so it's like this both and where, yes, you are accepted, like, you cannot earn your salvation before him. But at the same time, he wants to change you. He wants to grow you. And so there is, a, there is an acceptance, but there's also a challenge that we can lean into when we think about the cross. And so um, this morning, we're going to, again, break out. You guys are going to have some discussion here with your group.